Welcome to The Disappearing Mind, a unique podcast helping you find clarity and support along your dementia journey. Now, join National Dementia Trainer and Coach Don Platt for an all-new episode. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today in the studio, I'm very excited to have my guests in the studio today for a couple of reasons. I think the first reason is very personal for myself and for many of my friends. And that is because I have a mother who has dementia and I have just gone through a lot of things that my guest and I are going to talk about today. But the other reason is as a dementia coach, one of the things that's the hardest for my families is the topic we're going to talk about today. So my guest today is Ed Woolman, an elder law attorney. And welcome, Ed. Hi, Dawn. It's so good to have you in the studio today. Great, great to be here. We have a lot of good stuff to talk about, and I feel like this is going to be a meaningful program for our audience. Excellent. I hope so, too. Great. So, Ed, can you briefly introduce yourself and share some of your background and experience? Sure. Thank you very much. I'm Ed Wolman, and I am a board-certified wills, trusts, and estates attorney in Florida. My primary focus is estate planning. Some of the subcategories of estate planning is philanthropy, elder law, and just dealing with all aspects of seniors, senior living and senior care and long-term care insurance, all that stuff. You mentioned earlier in the introduction now that I'm an elder law attorney. There's actually a board certification in elder law, and I want to get it out of the way right away. Sure. I chose not to be board certified in elder law because I'm board certified in estate planning, which is the larger category. Mm -hmm. But in about 1989, 1990, I joined an organization which is the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. And I have had elder law clients about 20 a year since 1990. I just chose not to sit for the exam because I didn't want to confuse people. Are you doing high-end estate planning? Mm -hmm. Are you doing Medicare planning, Medicaid planning? So I do a little bit of everything, but I have a, a business with about 25 employees and we have experts in our group that specialize in the different areas, but we have chosen not to sit for the board certification. Okay. So Ed, tell us about your practice. It's in Naples, Florida. So tell us just a little bit about where it is, how big you are. Excellent. We've tried to specialize, which means we're a boutique. We only do estate planning and estate settlement. We don't try to be a jack of all trades. We Mm -hmm. have alliances with attorneys all over the country and all over the Southwest Florida area to provide expertise for our clients if they have a car accident, if they have a real estate transaction, they have a business deal. We strictly focus on this area, which includes the estate planning, the elder law, and the philanthropic estate planning. So, Ed, what is an elder law attorney and what inspired you to become one? Okay. So, basically, elder law is a fancy euphemism for Medicaid planning. A lot of times, Elder law encompasses many aspects of estate planning outside of applying for Medicaid, but most people fear running out of money. How am I going to pay for this exorbitant care that could be over $13,000 a month? If you stay at home, it could be over $20,000 a month for round-the-clock care. So what are my alternatives? What are my options? How early should I start doing the planning? That all encompasses elder law. So as soon as you start doing it, It is sort of like social work. 
I not only get paid, but you also get a tremendous amount of gratification helping families that are, are in severe pain because yes. they're dealing with a diagnosis of dementia, Parkinson's, and other illnesses that will have them end up in my office. Absolutely. Now, Ed, when we were off, Mike, you quoted me some statistics about the age of your clients and how that's changed. Could you just tell our audience, just share that sure. story? I have uh, two stories on point. One is that my mother is at Aston Gardens and she had a tremendously bad accident when she was 79 and uh, she was her boyfriend who was 89 and they got T-boned by a young lady without insurance. Mm -hmm. And she ended up moving from the East Coast of Florida to the West Coast of Florida. And she's now at Aston Gardens, one of your facilities up in Tampa. So that's one connection. But my connection here with my clientele is I started in 1989 in Naples over 30 years ago. And my clients on average were 68 years old. The next year, my clients on average coming into my office when they wanted to do estate planning were 68. And every year since then, they're 68. So my first clients are over 100 years old. The second ones are a year younger, a year younger. So I have a lot of clients that are 103, 102, 101, 199, 98, 97, 96, a lot of 96-year-olds. Wow. And as a result, we have to deal with this cognitive impairment mm -hmm. issue daily. And if you don't deal with it, beforehand, it's very frustrating to have to deal with it while you're going through it yourself. Absolutely. And it can be, it can seem almost impossible for families to do that. Well, let's kind of get into a few things. And first, I want to talk a little bit about the power of attorney and then guardianship, okay. because I know a lot of my families and even my friends that are in the age groups you're talking about for their parents, because our parents are living so much longer, have a lot of questions. Can you explain the concept of power of attorney and its significance in planning for aging and dementia? So in the elder law world, the attorneys always say the least restrictive alternative is to do your own estate planning. Pick somebody you really trust to make medical decisions for you when you're unable to make medical decisions. Pick somebody that can do banking for you when you're unable to give prompt and intelligent consideration to financial matters. So we have a durable power of attorney for financial and we have what you could call a durable power of attorney for healthcare. In Florida, it's called a healthcare surrogate mm -hmm. document. And the financial one is called a durable general power of attorney. You need both of them one to sign the checks and help get somebody help because somebody has got to pay for it. Right. And then you need the other one to make the decisions about the person. So one is the decisions about the property, the other is decisions about the person. You only need a guardianship when you don't have excellent estate planning documents. So the power of attorney will save you a tremendous amount of money, aggravation and time, and avoid a guardianship if it's all done properly. So Ed, are you saying that that's the first step is having that done so you don't have to look at the guardianship? Absolutely. Isn't that a, well, let me ask you, when is it advisable for individuals and families to establish this power of attorney? Maybe that's the question. Yesterday. Yesterday. Okay. Did you hear that audience yesterday? And, and, that, and that applies to you and I applies to everybody here, mm -hmm. all of our audience, the financial planning documents, the power of attorney, the healthcare surrogate, and the other documents we'll talk about later in this conversation are essential to have in place, no matter what your net worth is. 
in order for anybody to come into your house to help you out, these documents need to be in place. So whether you use LegalZoom or something equivalent to LegalZoom, or you come see an attorney that's very well-versed in this area, that's up to you. But please get it done and do planning and uh, plan early and plan often, they often say. So what are the key responsibilities and limitations of someone who's appointed as power of attorney? So basically, if somebody fights you on it and they become more than recalcitrant, they become impossible to deal with Mm -hmm. and they're not willing to use the documents which they signed, that's when you need to go to court to get the backing of the judge, to get the backing of the court with the guardianship documents. Because with guardianship documents, you have more, even more power. They're extremely similar. Mm -hmm. As long as the person's willing to go along with what they put in place years earlier, everything's fine. But if you do not have documents, or if the person fights you tooth and nail, even goes and hires a new attorney while they're incapacitated, Mm -hmm. that's when you need to go into court and have a conversation with the judge. So essentially families, their hands could really be tied at even doing simple things like paying for bills or adjusting insurance or renewing insurance. If their loved one is incapacitated, it really could tie them up. Or even signing the contract to get the healthcare professionals to come in to take care of your loved ones. Absolutely. So let's talk about the guardianship process. When it becomes necessary, I think you've kind of gone over that, but what is the process and what factors are usually considered by the courts when it comes to guardianship? Because there are so many charlatans in Florida back in the day, the guardianship statute went from just a few pages to well over 100 pages. So there's things that a guardian can do and things the guardian can't do. There's things the guardian can do, but only with court permission. Mm -hmm. And then there's things the guardian can do by themselves without court permission, as long as they've been appointed by the court. So the guardianship process costs a lot of money. It could be well over $10,000 to establish a guardianship because the court appoints an attorney to fight you. So they give the ward, that's the person who's sick, they give Mm -hmm. the ward their own attorney appointed by the court. Then they appoint a three-person examining committee, which includes a psychiatrist, a doctor, a social worker, and a layperson. And all these people have to get paid to do their job. Then you have a hearing, which is very disturbing if you still have some capacity. Mm -hmm. And then it just goes on and on. And then there's an annual report on top of all the initial documents. So basically a guardianship is in the probate court and it's like a lifetime probate that never ends until you die. Wow. And then it's hard to clean it up after you die because we have to go from a guardianship to the probate. So, Ed, is this where someone would be declared incompetent? Is that Mm -hmm. I've heard in healthcare, you know, that they're not declared incompetent? Right. That's what you're talking about here. Disability, incapacitation, incompetent, all these words are used interchangeably. The Florida statute has their particular vernacular, but that's not really necessary to go over here. Basically, you're going to have a hearing Mm -hmm. on not only the qualifications of the guardian, you cannot be a convict, you have to have proper schooling, and then there's courses you have to take. So it's very complicated and, like I said, expensive to become a guardian, but then the judge also will have a capacity hearing to see if the person is truly incapacitated. You can have a limited guardianship, which only takes away some of your rights, or you can have a plenary P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, a plenary, which means full, which they take away all your rights. Often we want you to be able to keep the right to vote, mm-hmm. keep the right to socialize, things like that. But we will take away the right to deal with money 
and to decide where you live so that we can make sure you're in a safe environment. So I can name five families just immediately that I probably talked to in the last two months who are at this process. Their loved one has mid-level dementia, thinks that they're competent, have not been declared incompetent, vacillates, but really has fallen to scammers, is overpaying bills or not paying bills. What would you say to these families in regards, you talked about $10,000 for guardianship. And for some seniors, that's going to be difficult to do. What about the power of attorney if they do that early? Mm -hmm. What's the difference in cost? Yeah, estate planning is, I can't give you a price for estate planning because it really depends on the complexity and Mm -hmm. the, uh, the net worth of the client. But estate planning is a fraction. And regardless of a fraction or not, once you have good estate planning documents in place, they're going to last and they're going to be so much better to use than a guardianship relying on the court. Just the time frame alone and dealing with lawyers on an annual basis with the guardianship is a pain in the neck and it's costly. So the documents, while are less expensive, they're more important than waiting around for a guardianship. But you can have a level of dementia and still have the ability to sign estate planning documents. So if you have an early diagnosis, get to an estate planning or an elder law attorney immediately. That's a very good point because I see a little discrimination here and there when it comes to dementia because it's a long and slow disease. People have been known to have it for 10 even 20 years. That's not unheard of. Just the diagnosis in itself does not make you incapacitated or anything like that. And I just think that we don't talk about this enough. There comes a point, and I'll give you an example. My mom is 95 years old. Obviously, I've been her healthcare surrogate because I'm a nurse for the last really 50 years. I have the paperwork for that, but no one's ever asked me for it because obviously, When I go in, I know what I'm talking about. But recently I found that I'm having to do more things than I ever needed to do before. So I do have the power of attorney in place. I found the healthcare advocacy, everything that I need. But I know for some people, they just don't know the steps to take. Do you ever get someone that makes the appointment, but then the family member comes in and refuses or has a moment? And what do you advise families to do in that case? It's less often the family members that fight over the actual documents. Mm -hmm. They might try, but they won't probably win because the documents, if properly executed, will stand up. It's the individuals who sign the documents who are in denial. So I had a couple recently, husband and wife both had dementia, and we tried to bring in a social worker. We've tried to bring in home health care. We tried to get them to move to assisted living. And they refused all the above until we got to a point where one of them falls, one of them ends up in the hospital and then assisted living. The other one's lost completely. Yes. So it's so important to do this well in advance of needing it. And if you do have to do it when you need it, that's fine. But it's much better to try to do it a couple of years, two, three years before you actually need it. Oh, that's great advice. So one more question, and then we're going to move on to some other dementia planning with legal documents. But I've gone through this being in healthcare for a long time with seniors. The power of attorney is only good. Is it while the person's living? Does that end? Can you just hit that? A real estate power of attorney that does not have the word general in it doesn't last while you're mentally incapacitated. So a durable means lasting, like 
Sears Tough Skin mm-hmm. jeans are durable. Right. So durable means lasting. So when you become incapacitated, the power of attorney kicks in and still is still good. It's still valid. Uh, when you die, it stops. And that's where your trust takes over and your uh, personal representative of your state takes over. So the power of attorney has a useful period while you're living. And then when you pass away, it, it goes on to a state settlement. Good. That's good to know and clarify. So other legal documents, can you explain some of the other legal documents that we probably should consider having in place, planning for some of dementia, such as living wills, advanced directives, or healthcare proxies? Excellent. So there's six basic documents, whether you have a cognitive impairment or you're like everyone else, just no problems whatsoever at the moment, knock on wood, as they say. But there are six documents, three medical, healthcare, and three financial. Starting with the medical, you have the HIPAA release, which says it's okay to talk to the doctors. It's hard to make a medical decision for somebody when you don't know that they're bipolar and they're on a medicine. Mm -hmm. So the HIPAA release allows you to understand their private medical records. The living will says, I do not want to be kept alive by heroic means. If two doctors believe there's no hope of recovery, And by using this food and water through a tube is only going to prolong the dying process. It's not going to keep me alive to the point where I'll have any function at all. And then there is the healthcare surrogate. So you're not dying, but all other medical decisions, you need somebody that can give informed consent. So the healthcare surrogate will give informed consent on your behalf and Mm -hmm. make medical decisions for you when you're no longer able to write or speak. If you can speak or write, you should be able to override them completely. But if you can't write or speak, then the document's already in place and they now have made it effective immediately. So you don't have to wait to find a doctor to prove you're incapacitated. So to repeat, the three medical documents, the HIPAA release, living will, healthcare surrogate. The three financial documents is the financial general durable power of attorney to pay the bills and Mm -hmm. sell assets, sell your house, pay for your care. There is the last will and testament, which is a Band-Aid. It simply says, I forgot to listen to my attorney and everything that I have when I die goes into my revocable trust. Revocable trust becomes irrevocable. So the word revocable trust is a misnomer. It's only revocable until you lose capacity or die. Once you lose capacity or die, it's no longer revocable because you can't revoke it. So there's the power of attorney, the will, last will and testament that pours into the trust. And then there's the revocable trust, which is designed to help you get organized. It is a management document like that thing in your glove compartment Mm -hmm. that we never look at except when the red light goes on. And that manual in your glove compartment, that owner's manual, is your revocable trust. Mm -hmm. It tells people what to do to take care of you, to pay your bills, and to make sure everything's running smoothly. They step into your shoes and take over. So the revocable trust is the most important document. The next most important document is the durable power of attorney because that allows us to pay all your bills. Okay. So I've heard a lot of words here and I hear them in healthcare. So we've talked about the healthcare proxy, the healthcare advocate, and then we used another term. Are those pretty much the same surrogate, advocate, proxy? Healthcare surrogate, healthcare durable power of attorney, healthcare proxy, healthcare advocate. They're all different states have different names. Okay. Florida tries to use plain English. 
Very good. Okay. So they're pretty much the same. So we've talked a little bit about the decision-making capacity and how that's done in Florida. That's a little different in each state, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. When should families consider, we've talked about this some, an elder law attorney, as children, we're a little bit reluctant to kind of step in and take over. And some of our parents are old school Mm -hmm. and they can sit very private. I mean, who knows how much money their parents have until you figure out maybe they haven't been wise with it. No, no, it's really surprising how much the children do not know their parents are very comfortable because they were frugal and they accumulated a lot of money back in the day. Absolutely. So can you give us a couple of examples, maybe one extreme to another of Mm -hmm. families who had nothing and they'd know it, or maybe those that were much better prepared and how you handle that? So I kind of categorize clients when they come in the office. If they're more mature in age pick an age, I don't want to kind of mm-hmm. give one to you, then you're going to start thinking more about elder law and how am I going to pay for care? If they have less assets, we're going to think of elder law and how are they going to pay for care? But if they're younger or wealthier, then they're going to have a lot more options and we don't have to run out and worry as much. But if you have a modest amount of assets and in Naples standards, that's a, a different number than it would be possibly in the middle of the United States. But if you have a modest amount of assets and you're reaching a more mature age, let's just say somewhere 80s plus, Mm -hmm. then you really should consider how are we going to protect our assets? How are we going to shelter some of our assets? Should we start giving some of our assets away so that we can protect some of it for our loved ones? And that's going to be a very sensitive conversation that I try to have on a case-by-case basis. Okay, great. Well, we talked a little bit about your role in helping families navigate this, but there's some complex legal issues. How do you help families that say are Medicaid planning? And let's just talk about Medicaid for a moment. I like to play this in again. I like to use personal experience or Mm -hmm. my clients or the many families that I work with across the United States. My mom was well set, except she outlived her life expectancy. Mm -hmm. So her pension and social security, she's kind of outlived the value of that. Her life insurance that she paid on for, I don't know, 45 years expired. Do you actually help families navigate that system? And how long of a process just planning for Medicaid, not applying, but planning, how long is this? Say if I came and visited you next week, what could we be looking at as far as visits and length of time? So Dawn, I would say that if you are 55 or older, you should definitely look at self-funding versus going out and buying a long-term care insurance policy. Because once you sit down with a financial advisor and determine that you can afford a long-term care insurance policy, Mm -hmm. you're going to sleep at night knowing that that's one more thing that's taken care of. If you don't qualify or if you choose not to spend the money, you choose to self-insure, then you want to look at your Medicaid eligibility requirements and see, are you going to be able to obtain the government benefits so they can help pay for the expensive care? Or are you going to have to pay privately until your money runs out? Okay. So that's different state to state, right? 
a little of the federal government block grants the money. In other words, they take the money out of our paychecks. Mm -hmm. They send it up to the federal government. The federal government then gives it to the state and then the state decides how to dole it out. There's a lot of overlapping similar laws. Many of them come from the federal government. Some of them come from the state, but they're very similar. Florida is very, very, very favorable. You can keep your house up to a certain value, somewhere over 600,000, 500,000 indexed up. It's over 600,000 now. If you have a spouse, he or she can keep over 120,000. It's a number that's being indexed. Mm-hmm. So I don't keep up with the exact number each right, year I right. check. Um, you can keep a certain level of income. If you're, this, if you're the healthy spouse in the community, mm-hmm. you can have unlimited income. And if you're the sixth spouse, you can have up to $2,000 indexed per month. And then if you're the sixth spouse, you can only have 2,000 of assets. And the healthy spouse can have that 120 plus, plus the house, plus unlimited income. So if you have too much assets to qualify and you have a spouse, we're going to convert the assets that cause you to not qualify. Uh-huh. We're going to convert them from assets that are countable. We're going to flip them over and turn them into an asset that doesn't count because it, we turn it into an income stream like an annuity uh-huh. for the healthy spouse. So there's a lot of puzzle movement, moving parts like a puzzle mm-hmm. in order to qualify for Medicaid. So you can have assistance from the government to help you with your healthcare costs, primarily at a nursing home, but sometimes at assisted living. Okay. What are some of the triggers that families might be noticing that they should be thinking about And I can tell you, none of the adult children want to think about it because it's kind of scary. But consulting an elder law attorney, like, what would you say to people? Not to be self-serving, but I'm sort of a blend of both because I'm an estate planning attorney that happens to do elder law. Yes. A lot of the elder law attorneys don't do that much estate planning. They might draft a will or a simple trust, but they don't do a tremendous amount of estate planning like we do. The only reason I'm saying that is because it's not really a matter of consulting an elder law attorney. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of getting your wills and trusts in place early with somebody that also is sensitive to what happens if we run out of money. Okay. How do we shelter our assets? Because there's a five-year look back. Mm -hmm. So giving your money to your children five years before you need a nursing home is usually, I'll go on record, a horrible idea. Right. Because you don't want to be beholden to your children. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if it's done properly with an attorney that understands how to establish an irrevocable trust that will not be counted when you go to apply for Medicaid, then you can have maybe the best of both worlds or at least a better world in order to protect your assets. Well, I know in the state of Florida, and I have no idea anywhere else in the nation, that there is something called a qualified income trust. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And and are there limitations on that? Yeah. So if your income is too high, you're sitting on a, you're in the abyss. You don't have enough money to pay for care, Mm -hmm. but you have too much money to qualify for Medicaid. So if you have too much income, what they'll allow you to do is shift your income into a qualified income trust. And again, that has all kinds of different names, like a Miller Trust, because it was codified in OBRA 93 because of the case with the Millers. But basically, this trust is now called a QIT, a Qualified Income Trust. And what you do is you shift the excess income into the trust. So now they allow you to qualify. They treat you as if your income is below the number. Then all the money that's in the trust goes to the facility. 
except you're allowed to keep a certain dollar amount, like $75 for what they call doing your hair, hair care. Uh-huh. Okay. That's Obviously, good. I'll need that. And is that across the nation or just some states have that? Yeah, you just see these similar programs. Right. This is Florida, but a lot of a lot of places have similar okay. rules. Right. And, you know, the cost of long-term care is very expensive. And if you're going to live a long time, it's going to eat into your assets unless you've planned very, very well, very quickly. One way or the other, there's some a standalone products in long-term care where you get your money back. Mm-hmm. So those products, if you financially can afford it, might fit your budget. So you put in a whole lot of money into the policy, and then when you pass away, your family gets the money back okay. through either a death benefit mm-hmm. or other, other benefits. So those products have very great value, and you should discuss it with your financial advisor. So are there any local or national resources or organizations that families could reach out to, especially uh, in relation to dementia-related legal issues? It's really tough because if, say, you go to the Alzheimer's support group Mm -hmm. or an equivalent organization like that, they're going to have a lot of hands-on experience, and they're going to point you in the direction of probably the most well-known elder law attorney in the area. But once again, that might not be the balance that you're looking for Mm -hmm. because that's going to be somebody that knows how to get Medicaid. But many of you do not need Medicaid. What you need is careful estate and financial planning. Absolutely. That's that's Again, the Medicaid recipient is usually somebody with a modest net worth, Mm -hmm. several hundred thousand dollars, a modest home. Again, you put those things together, that's only a small percentage of our population a great deal of people need to get the consultation regarding Medicaid planning and elder law, but then they realize it's not for them. They really want to just do proper planning. Absolutely. And then if you're going to do gifting, do not casually gift. Because mm-hmm. if you casually gift and then you need to apply for Medicaid, any gifts you make within five years are brought back into your pool of assets when calculating whether you qualify regardless of the annual exclusion gift or gift tax purposes. So let's talk more about casual gifts. Is that more than just giving money to your children? Could that be donations or if philanthropy? You pull anything out of your pocket and give anything to anybody within five years, they're going to pull it back. They'll say, did you make any transfers at all for less than full and adequate consideration in the mm-hmm. last five years, which includes charity and family? Charity? Really? Well, I've never heard that before. I think that that's really something to consider. So if you gave, I, I don't know, $1,000 to the Humane Society or whatever, is, is that what you're talking about, Ed? Imagine if you had $100,000 left over mm-hmm. and you really, really are going downhill and you need to apply for Medicaid one year from now. So you're going to give your $100,000 away, whether it's to charity or family, and then you're going to tell the state of Florida, I don't have any money left because I gave it away. They're not going to be real happy. That's why there's a five-year look back. Okay. Good to know. One more question in regards to that. There's a lot of people of faith mm-hmm. out there. Does that include their giving to their church? Yeah, It really does. I don't think too many de minimis gifts mm-hmm. are recognized when you're filling out the application. I can't recall filling out an application that I've asked somebody, did you give $25 in the, in the plate on Sunday? 
Right. You know, that's not what we're really looking for. We're really looking for, did you, you know, give your children serious money? Mm -hmm. But it does apply. I mean, the rules are the rules. Okay, great. Well, that's great to know. I don't think I've ever heard that in all of my years in healthcare. So good, very good point, because we don't know what today is. And we think that we can do that. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. And things can change very quickly. Good discussion. Do you have any advice or key takeaways for our listeners who may be facing dementia-related legal challenges? And I'm going to bring up a case. I have a dear friend whose mom is well into mid-level dementia. She's in and out. She has kind of mixed psychosis. Mm-hmm. And she really wants help. She really isn't capable, although it has not been determined that she's incompetent, but really is reluctant. There's a stigma in and around giving POA, giving that. And so it goes back and forth, but yet the family cannot support her. This particular woman has been scammed Mm -hmm. tremendously over and over again, and they can't even go in to protect what assets she has. What kinds of advice would you give this family? Find a compassionate attorney that knows how to talk to people like that. Just explains, would you like the money to be protected for your children? Or would you like somebody else to make decisions for you when you run out of money? Mm-hmm. And it's really a difficult, difficult road to navigate, difficult uh, directions to navigate, because you're so right. If they're already into the denial phase, or you're trying to take my money away from me, I mean, I had an extremely affluent person in my office this week whose parent wants to disown them and thinks they stole all the money from them. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, and they didn't need the parent's money. But it's sad because once you get to that stage, if the right documents are not in place. So what really happens if the right documents are in place and somebody's behaving like that? I would recommend moving the assets so that person doesn't get a hold of the assets and give them to some stranger, or like you said, pay for bills that they shouldn't be paying for. Mm-hmm. I've had people buy window treatment two and three times or buy a generator or buy a new air condition unit when they didn't need it mm-hmm. because people take prey on the elderly in Southwest Florida. Absolutely. And, and everywhere in the country. And everywhere in the country, but they certainly do it. And cell phones and calling, it's just right. almost like they smell the elderly. They take advantage of our seniors, which is really, really sad. So how do family dynamics play into this decision-making process and dementia care and legal matters? Is that something you deal with if there are multiple children or is it, how does that work? I mean, I try to find the point guard. I try to find the person who they all pick to be the voice of the family. Mm -hmm. And I try to create some semblance of cooperation immediately. If I find there's different factions, I'm a, I'm a, then I'm going to want to know the voice for each faction and say, what is it we're trying to accomplish here? And I, I work with Venn diagrams and everything I do. Mm-hmm. And I would just say, hey, what's our overlapping interest here? And we're all out for the same thing. We want to protect, preserve, et cetera. And therefore, let's work on it together. And I'm usually the middleman, like the family who can't talk to each other. They'll, they'll go through me. And that usually calms things down a great deal because they both agree that they'd rather not talk to the sibling or the, mm-hmm. the step parent. Okay. Too much emotion probably tied to it. Yeah, lots of history. So let's just go back a minute. A thought just came to me. You talked about being honest with the person, perhaps with dementia. I can tell you from my experience, which is vast, 
working with people with dementia. And I want to get your take on this, though. They are fearful of running out of money or they're fearful of having their money unguarded or stolen. I find that when I approach them, just educating them on your assets aren't protected or maybe you're forgetting or maybe you'll lose your credit card. Does that work for you? I mean, are you really able to approach them with that, like the good cop, bad cop? And are you able to really get them to listen to you when it comes to you're just trying to protect their assets or they still fearful of you? I think it's more global. It's either they're in or they're out. If, mm-hmm. if it starts to be uh, what you were just talking about, those finer points, I think by then, if they're not going to listen, they're not going to listen to me either. But if you can catch them at the cusp before they start to really make bad decisions Mm -hmm. and they know it's in their best interest to bring the child up to the driver's seat, picture a bus with the bus driver or a plane with a pilot and a co-pilot. What we're doing now, because of the age of my population and my client base, between 88 and 92 years old, right? before it's even necessary, we're bringing the child into the co-pilot seat. So the child becomes the co-trustee, the child's the attorney, in fact, under the power of attorney and the healthcare surrogate. So we try to get the child, the one they trust the most, in place early. And that hopefully builds confidence in the person who ultimately may be a little paranoid about losing control. Exactly. So do it in stages. Do it in stages. So we've talked about cost here. And I think that I've worked with enough families across the United States that we're talking a very small percentage doing it up front or as quickly as possible as to after the fact when you have to go through the whole legal realm and and whether or not they need guardianship Mm -hmm. and that whole thing. In regards to individuals, and I want to bring in my dementia expertise here because I feel like that a lot of times my clients or families I work with, any transition that happens in a person's life with dementia, they're going to go through stages. And when they get well into their dementia, they are going to have difficulty processing. They're going to have difficulty comprehending. They may have not only personality changes, but behavior and mood swings. So I try and say, and I want to get your legal side of this because I do advise this. I'll say it out loud. If your mom or dad is unstable, something could be happening. Maybe their medication isn't right. Maybe they're transitioning and you've taken them to a new place and they're adjusting. So they're having more difficulty responding to you or maybe even exhibiting behaviors, but they can still stabilize and become much more stable. So I have seen, and I feel like I want to tell our audience, provided that your loved one is not totally incapacitated, I think that you could still manage the durable power of attorney if your loved one is stable. And what I mean by that, there's no extenuating factors such as an infection or a recent trauma or transition that may be causing them. I had a case this weekend with a family whose dad fractured the hip. He's in the hospital. The hospital's trying to keep him safe after anesthesia. He's trying to get up. So unfortunately, he was restrained. So guess what he's doing? He's acting out, but that's not what he's going to be this week. That's not what he's going to be once he's able to sleep and he's stabilized. So I guess my question is, 
do you feel like this can be happen long into the process, even with dementia, as long as the person is willing and not declared incompetent? That's a lot to unpack. Every situation is completely different. Mm -hmm. You don't have a choice. If you're in those scenarios, you don't have a choice. You have to try. Right. You go to the lawyer. If the lawyer makes an evaluation that he or she can't do the documents, then you're stuck with the guardianship. Absolutely. But at least you should try. And if you can't bring the client to the lawyer, the lawyer should be able to go out to visit with the client. And the children paying for all this, I think, is sometimes important. Mm -hmm. The attorney has to remember who the attorney's client is. The client is the client is the client. It's not the children, Mm -hmm. except in a guardianship, then it's totally different. But it's really important to remember who your client is and then not giving enormous bills or big bills to the patient spouse or the patient we're talking about Mm -hmm. because most of them are from the depression mentality and, and seeing a lawyer or an accountant or an appraiser yes. with big bills is going to freak them out. So you have to hopefully get in control and be able to financially afford to bring in the experts when needed mm-hmm. as early as possible. Absolutely. So as we begin to wrap up things, do you have any particular success stories or challenges that you can put out there for our audience who may be facing this? Mm-hmm. 19 out of 20 are all success stories. It's the 20th that is the the tragic one where the person just won't let go. They're unwilling to give anybody the power of attorney. They just want to stay in control with an iron fist until the very last breath. And you just do the best job to plan around that. I have stories after stories on all these fact patterns, but not too many of them are happy, happy, happy. But about 19 of the 20 cases are super successful. It's that one case where the person holds out and just is unwilling to plan properly or they plan properly. Look at my dad's situation. My dad had excellent estate planning documents and he wanted to drive his car and we would take his keys away and we'd hide them. Mm -hmm. And he was a genius. He'd find them every time we took the battery out of the car. He put the battery back in the car. So we had to get rid of the car. Uh Uh-huh. All right. It's not, it's just not easy. And I feel for all of you because everybody has experienced it with a sister, brother, parent, grandparent, Dementia is a horrible diagnosis, illness, and hopefully they'll soon come up with a cure. Absolutely. We're hoping for a cure. We're hoping for more effective treatments. Let's go ahead today and wrap. And I want to advise my audience because I think there are a number of things that Ed brought up that are so valuable today. And I kind of feel like this would be my advice. If you get a dementia diagnosis or any other, I think that you should definitely put that estate planning, elder law, durable power of attorney on your list. Without exception, it should be part of that checkup after you get it because you don't know when it's going to come into play. And I think that we need to get away from the stigma of doing that or children, because I know for me, I really hadn't needed it for years. I helped out and I have a healthcare background, but when it comes down to real matters, you got to have the legal documents. You, you got to produce the living will. You got to produce the healthcare advocate and the durable power of attorney to even get a new insurance card. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to do that. And have an open line of communication with your children and or grandchildren or whoever your next of kin is, because they need to know that I already have this. Here's the card. At least here's the card of my attorney and my social worker, et cetera. And then pull your team together and then get a nice little list of everybody that's on your team 
with a little roadmap. Follow the yellow brick road and make sure all your legal documents are in order. Make sure all your list of medicines are in order. Make sure your photographs are in order. Make sure your pet care is in order. If you fall down and go boom, somebody's got to take care of your pet. So you need an emergency plan, legal documents, photographs, pet care, and medicine. Great, great, great advice. So I hope today, as you listen to the podcast, share this with your friends. Let us know if you have any questions. We'll have Ed Woolman's information on our resource page. But until next time, I hope that this has made a difference for you and your family. Make it a memorable day. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dawn. Thank you for joining us for the Disappearing Mind podcast. We hope it's helped you find clarity and support along your journey. Be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode, visit our website to suggest future topics, and share the podcast with friends and family.